our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here and gathered together through the internet in our various homes. Today we remember in a very special way the cross of Christ. This cross stands literally at the very crux of history. The cross stands at the center of the history of the universe. And here at the cross, we see God pouring out his burning anger against our sin. Pouring out his righteous wrath against our unrighteousness. But pouring it out not on us but on his own beloved son. Here at the cross, we see Jesus suffering the hellish agony that he did not deserve, suffering the torments of hell in our place. Do you see Jesus hanging there in your place? Jesus took time to prepare for the cross. In fact, Jesus spent all his life preparing for this suffering. He suffered all his life preparing for this suffering. He suffered humiliation when he, the Lord and creator of the universe, was conceived as a human in his mother's womb. He suffered when he was born in the dirty, noisy animal shelter in Bethlehem. He suffered all of his life as he grew up like a tender plant, having no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He suffered when he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He suffered when Satan hurled all the forces of the kingdom of darkness against him in one vicious attack after another. He suffered when he came to his own and his own received him not. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He suffered as the impending weight of the cross pressed out of him the bloody sweat in the garden of Gethsemane. He suffered when he was betrayed by one disciple and abandoned by all the others. He suffered when he was condemned to death by the leaders of the people of God as he was spat upon and blindfolded and humiliated and beaten. He suffered as he looked into the eyes of Peter who denied him. He suffered throughout a night of a thousand indignities. And then he suffered when the people of God chose to put the life giver to death and to set a murderer free. He suffered as the very people he had come to save lusted for his blood. He suffered as the Romans tortured him and mocked him. He suffered 
as weakened by countless hours of physical and mental torture, he stumbled towards Golgotha under the awful weight of the cross. He suffered as he was stripped off his clothes and brutally nailed to the wood, set between two criminals. He suffered as the criminals joined with the leaders of God's people to jeer at him, to heap insults on him. And he suffered as the very creation that he made by the power of his word, that creation turned its back on him as the sun that he commanded to shine at the beginning refused to shine upon him, leaving him in darkness. And there... On the cross, lifted up between heaven and earth and rejected by both, Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath. And he drinks it to the very last drop. And as he reaches the very bottom of the pit, as he comes to the very climax of the agony of his suffering. He senses the horror of hell, the terrifying feeling of the absence of God's presence. And that wrenches from him the cry which begins our text, Eli, Eli, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the astonishing things about Jesus in all his suffering is how carefully he continued to fulfill the law and the scriptures. And you remember that Matthew makes a big deal about that. He's always reminding us how Jesus does things and Jesus says things to fulfill that which was written in the prophets. And he keeps doing that on the cross, even in the hour of his greatest anguish from the cross. He keeps the fifth commandment as he graciously makes provision for his mother after his death. From the cross, he keeps the law of love as he seeks the salvation of the criminal beside him who just moments ago was mocking him. And from the cross... He shows his undying love to his father by carefully fulfilling every word of God. You see that in John chapter 19, 28. Pay attention to what the apostle writes there. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. He said it, not in the first place because of his thirst, which he had, but in the first place to fulfill the scripture. It is this same care to fulfill the word of God that leads Christ to take on his lips the words of Psalm 22. Not all of his suffering and agony can manage to obscure in his mind the fact that he is the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the writings, that all the scriptures point to him and speak of him. Now, Psalm 22 is an astonishing psalm. Some have called it the fifth gospel account of the crucifixion. 
It is a psalm of David. It speaks of a time in which David suffered great humiliation and apparent defeat. And that's the verses 1 through to 21. That's our text. Followed by a subsequent glorious restoration. And we see that in the end of the psalm, verses 22 through to 31, which we'll consider on Sunday morning. It most likely refers to the, the time in which David was hunted down by Saul and suffered many setbacks and betrayal and persecution until finally he was exalted as the king of Israel. But, but the colors with which David paints the situation are so vivid They describe his humiliation and his subsequent restoration in terms far more intense than anything he ever really experienced. And what's happening in this psalm is that the Holy Spirit takes hold of David and sets in his mouth prophetic words which describe in exquisite detail the suffering and the subsequent exaltation of the Messiah, the great son of David. David is describing his own experience, but he does so in such a way that at the same time he is prophesying of the suffering and exaltation of the great son of David about a thousand years later. And it is a testimony to the power and the glory of the Holy Spirit and to the fundamental unity of all the inspired scripture that although an entire millennium separates the psalm from the cross. Nevertheless, it seems, as we're reading the psalm, it seems as though we have a detailed eyewitness account of what is happening on Golgotha. Did you notice that when we read Psalm 22? Sometimes word for word, what was said in that psalm was repeated there in Matthew chapter 27, which we read. And when Jesus, in the depth of his suffering takes the words of this psalm on his lips. He appropriates its content for himself. And we see in the psalm that God's Messiah, God's anointed one, calls God's attention to to three levels of his suffering. And after stating each one of those three, he cries out for deliverance. And what we're going to do is a little unusual. We're going to actually start at the end of the text. I'm going to start with the third level, which would be verses 12 through to 21. If you have your Bible open, 12 to 21, we'll deal with that first. And in this level, and beginning in verses 12 and 13, we, we see Christ on the cross in the exquisite agony of body and mind and, and emotions. His mockers are like brute animals, like violent bulls, like roaring lions. They're circling around him, seeking an opportunity to crush, to gore, to tear him apart. And if you flip to verse 16, you see that again, dogs Surround me, dogs encompass me in a company of evildoers and circles me. So the Messiah is surrounded by enemies and there is no escape. And so in verse 14, he says, I am poured out like water. And that's a, that's a Hebrew idiom. It, it means I am absolutely finished. I am undone. I can't take any more. He has no strength to go on. Physical, 
emotional, mental. His heart cannot bear it anymore. It's melted away. And look at verse 15. His strength is so reduced, so dried up that he compares it to a a dry, broken piece of pottery lying in the dust in the burning hot sun, useless, unable to serve for any purpose, unable to refresh, to strengthen, to encourage. That's what his strength is like. We see Christ on the cross, his hands and his feet cruelly hammered and nailed to the wood. Look at verse 16. They, they have pierced my hands and my feet. After a night of cruel torture, he spent the last six hours from about nine in the morning to three in the afternoon, suspended between heaven and earth, crucified. And to be crucified was a most painful way to die. It's where we get our English word excruciating. An excruciating pain. It's a pain which is unbearable. And that crush in the middle of that word is from the Latin word cross. The nails, about eight inches long, crush an important burning pain up the entire arm. The shoulders come out of their sockets because of the weight. Look at verse 14. All my bones are out of joint. His back still flayed and bleeding from the flogging. His head still smarting from the cruel crown of thorns. And the position that he was on on the cross, the way that it was for a crucified person, made it almost impossible to breathe. Every breath required excruciating effort and agony. You had to to lift yourself up to try and gasp some oxygen into your lungs. And the blood loss and the lack of oxygen leads to dehydration. Look at verse 15. My tongue sticks to my, my jaws. Or we can also translate my, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Along with that dehydration, blood loss, lack of oxygen, pounding headache. You remember what Jesus said. I thirst. And while Christ suffers there, his blood pounding painfully in his head. Look at verses 17 and 18. What are people doing? We read it in Matthew chapter 27. They stare and they gloat and they divide his garments among them and for his clothing they cast lots. And in the verses 19 through to 21, the Messiah, Christ, he calls out to God. Oh, Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Oh, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious, and the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And we can translate the end of verse 2 this way as a plea. Rescue me from the horns of the wild oxen. Christ is a man. He is suffering as a man. He is suffering as the last Adam. He calls out to his God. He calls out to his Father. But there is no answer. No relief from the agony. 
And so we go back in our text and we come to level two, which is the verses six through to 11. And in this level of suffering, we see not just that the physical and mental anguish of our Lord, as we saw it in the first part, but we see that Christ's pain is also in the area of his relationships. We see Christ's pain as, as those who, who should be his brothers, his followers, his disciples, they, the whole people of God who should have welcomed him as their Lord. They're standing by and they're mocking him. Look at verse 6. I'm scorned by mankind. I'm despised by the people. What does the Apostle John say? He came to his own, but his own received him not. Betrayed by a close disciple. Abandoned by the twelve. Christ has in every way been disappointed, betrayed, and cruelly treated by every human relationship. And even worse, those circling the cross call into question the relationship which Jesus holds most precious. Look at verse 7. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Now it's astonishing that Psalm 22 has no word of imprecation. Jesus doesn't lash out and ask God to pour out his anger on his enemies. He had every right to do so. But what does the prophet Isaiah say? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. There are no words of reproach. There are no words of judgment. There are no words to defend himself. What we're reading here in Psalm 22 is a picture into the soul of our suffering Savior. We are allowed by the Holy Spirit to look into the anguish of his soul. And in the absence of any comfort, or support from human friendship. And as his very relationship with his God is called into question, Jesus cries out to God. And look what, how he does that in verses 9 and 10. He, he appeals to the facts of redemptive history and covenant truth. He cries out to God. He says, Lord, from the moment I was conceived, I belong to you. He cries out to God based on the certain promises of the covenant. He calls for help, calling God's attention to the covenant relationship. On you was I cast from my birth, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. And based on that, and that should be enough, shouldn't it? He can cry out in verse 11, be not far from me. For trouble is near, and there is none to help. But there is no answer and no relief from the agony. And so we come to the beginning of our text, the verses 1 through to 5. Jesus is experiencing the crushing consequences of sin in body, mind, and soul. The consequences of God's 
righteous wrath against sin. He's experiencing the devastating effects of sin and destroying all human relationships. And up to this point, some of us at least can to a certain extent understand what our Savior is going through. Some of us know what it is to not be able to breathe, to gasp for a breath. Some of us know what it is to be in intense, ongoing pain, unrelenting pain. Some of us know what it is to be betrayed by someone so close to us, a loved one. To feel abandoned by others who should be there for us. But as we come to this first part of the text, we come to a level of suffering that not one of us can ever, ever experience. And praise God for it. Because physical anguish and Mental anguish and psychological anguish and broken relationships, these are all terrible. They hurt. But the very worst consequence of sin, the very climax of sin's devastating results, is that sin destroys man's relationship with God. And now the climax of the Messiah's suffering is set before us in verses 1 and 2. And it is the horrifying realization that God is far from him. This is the essence of hell. What makes hell, hell, is not necessarily the the agony of the liquid fire. What makes hell, hell, is the fact that God is not anywhere to be found in His grace, His love, and His mercy. Now Jesus has spent a lifetime suffering without a word of complaint. He has spent several days being cruelly tortured, But as we already heard from the prophet Isaiah, like a sheep led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. But now, after all of this unspeakable anguish and pain and agony, he comes to the terrifying realization that God is not with him. And it is this realization that presses out of Jesus, that awful cry which rings throughout the universe and rings throughout history. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find No rest. Jesus 
has spent his entire life serving God faithfully, loving God sincerely. His food has been to do the will of God. He knows God as his father. He believes implicitly in the history of redemption as he's learned from the scriptures that God is sovereign, that God saves his people when they call. Look at him in verse 3, 4, and 5. He rehearses the history of salvation. He says, Lord, you're enthroned in the praises of a people that trusted in you time and time again. And time and time again, you came through. They cried to you. They were rescued. They trusted in you. They were not put to shame when they called, you heard, and you answered. That's who you are. That's why I'm calling to you, O Lord. So where are you? Why have you forsaken me? But there is no answer. There is no relief from the agony. Brothers and sisters, what are we seeing here? What do we learn? As we stand and gaze at the cross, I want to mention just three things at this point. The first thing is this. Every sinner deserves the awful terror of hell and eternal death. The wages of sin is death. You know, the unbeliever likes to imagine hell as one great big party. A nightclub on Friday night where everybody's just doing what they want and giving themselves over to sin. And they're looking forward to it. But that's not what hell is like at all. Hell is what we have portrayed here on the cross. It is unspeakable anguish of body and mind and soul which goes on forever and ever and ever. And this suffering, this pain, this horror is what I deserve and what you deserve. What Jesus experiences in all its infinity in those hours on the cross the sinner must experience forever. And there are only two ways, brothers and sisters, that this can happen. Either you must experience this hell yourself, or Jesus must have suffered it in your place. Those are the only two options. The hell you deserve, the hell I deserve, must be experienced, must be paid. Either I pay it myself and never finish paying, or Jesus, praise God, suffered it in my place. And so if this morning there is anyone amongst us who has not yet confessed himself or herself to be a sinner, who has not yet 
bowed the knee and confessed with the tongue that Jesus is Lord, who has not yet fallen at the foot of the cross and cried out, O Lord, save me, an unworthy sinner. Then in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you this morning, repent and believe. There is no other hope for you but the Lord Jesus, his death and his suffering. Every sinner must experience eternal death, either himself or herself or Jesus in our place. The second thing I want to do, draw to your attention is this, that Christ knows the terror of pain, suffering, and death. Our Savior is not some faraway God, impassive, who has no idea what it is like to be human. The sufferer of Psalm 22 is a human being experiencing the terror of mortality in the absence of God and the presence of enemies. And in the suffering of Jesus, we perceive God in Jesus entering into and participating in the terror of mortality. He identifies with the suffering and the dying. Because God in Jesus has engaged in that desolation. He can offer comfort to those of us who walk now where the psalmist walked. What does that mean? It means that by his suffering and through his suffering, Jesus understands any suffering that you may have gone through or might be going through. Whether it's physical or emotional or psychological or spiritual, he has known worse pain than you could ever imagine. Have you suffered? Are you suffering? You can find great comfort in the wounds of Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we were just as we are, yet was without sin. So that's the first thing. Every sinner must suffer eternal hell, either in himself or in Christ. In the second place, Christ knows the terror of death. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our suffering. And finally, the third thing I want to draw to your attention is this. What do we, what do we learn as we Stand and gaze at the cross. What are we seeing? We are seeing the most astonishing exchange or trade in the history of the universe. We see God taking my sin, taking your sin, and nailing it to the cross. And you, says the apostle, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made a life together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You know what that means? It means that at the cross, when we look at the cross, we see God dealing with sin, dealing with my sin. Dealing with your sin, taking all the filth 
and the guilt and the shame and the pollution of our sin and putting it on His Son. And then taking all the purity and the holiness and the obedience and the righteousness of Jesus and putting it on us. That's the exchange. What does the apostle say to the Corinthians? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you understand what God is telling us, brothers and sisters? That all the filth and shame of our sins He can't see it anymore. It's not there. When he looks at you, he sees no sin. He sees no guilt. He sees no shame. He sees no pollution. He sees no impurity. He sees Jesus. He sees righteousness. He sees men, women, and children that he he loves that are just as holy and pure as His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And the reason God can see us that way is because at Golgotha, He saw Jesus as the very incarnation of all of our shame and guilt and misery and sin. So what we see at the cross is the breathtaking fulfillment of that prophecy in Psalm 85, verse 10. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Because here at the cross, we see God found a way to maintain His infinite justice and holiness. And at the same time, to show His infinite love and grace, He found a way to do it. And that was to forsake his only begotten son in order to embrace his undeserving people. On the cross, Jesus humbled himself, body and soul, to the very deepest shame and anguish of hell. Then he called out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That we might be accepted by God. And nevermore be forsaken by him. Jesus cried out. And there was no answer. So that when we cry out, we may know that there is always a listening God, a hearing God, an answering God. That is amazing love. Amazing love that can leave no one unmoved. Amazing love that can leave no heart untouched, no life unchanged. Amazing love that causes us to sing with holy wonder that sing that, that the hymn that we, we quoted just a few weeks ago. But we're going to quote it again. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me? Who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued? 
amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amen.